what would you describe if somebody asked you the question, what was one of the holiest moments of your life? What would you say? It's not a concept that we talk about often, but I think if we were to think about it, that is a feeling, a sense that we have of things that are going on, that that was holy. There was something sacred happening in that space. And I wonder, I think for many of us, especially if you're here today and you've grown up in church or that's been a part of your life for a long time, I do wonder for how many of us that experience that we would describe to somebody else would be, would start with, I was in a church service. My guess is that for many of us, that would not be the story that we would tell. Today, I want to look at the sense of what God has given to us and how it might be okay that the story we tell doesn't start with, I was in a church service, but how God might be inviting us to see the world anew. And my hope is that for us today, we will have walk out of here with a new sense of what God is wanting to do both in the world and in and through our lives. Last week, we started uh, what, what really works out to be kind of a part one of what we're going to get into today. And last week was intensely personal. It was focused on your life with God. And so if you missed that week, you can pull it up on the podcast. Just search Ecclesia Princeton. It's right there. But this week, what I want to do is to zoom out. Because we've been talking about the mission of God, which sounds like a very, very serious phrase, right? Like very important. And it is. But what I want to do today is to look at the wide-angle view of the mission that God has given to us from the very beginning. And to do that, to start in the beginning, we have to go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Beginning of verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. So, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all these other things that God had made. Now, if we look closely at this text, you can see five verbs that God is the subject of. And this is such an important thing about when we gather at church just a simple principle. God is the subject of the verbs. It's a beautiful thing for us who are used to being defined by what we can do, by what we can produce. You don't have to produce anything here. You simply receive the reality that God has spoken over you. You receive the reality of what Jesus has won for you in his life, death, and resurrection. God is the subject of the verbs. And if we look at the verbs that are specific to this text in Genesis chapter 1, we see five in the text that we just read, and I'm just going to add a six that's from the section that immediately follows it. First, we see that God speaks. God speaks creation into existence. Words create worlds. God makes, he creates. God blesses, God gives, God sees. And then in the next section, it says that God rests. 
this is significant. We have to pay attention to what God is doing. Because as it says there in Genesis 1.26, we are made in the image of this God. So at some level, we will be doing the things that this God is doing. And so we have to pay attention to what he is doing so that we can do the things that he does. And friends, let me just tell you from the very outset, as you're here today, the fundamental truth about your existence is that you are made in the image of God. Because God is the subject of the verbs, because he is so gracious and good, you are made in the image of God. And if you read that text well, with each succeeding creation, God will look upon what he has made and he will say that it is good. And how many of us have this nagging sense that we are not good? That there is something fundamentally broken about us? I'm here to tell you today that that is not the truth of who you are. That is a, 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 an imposter in our story that enters in. It's sin and brokenness. It's the things that we submit to that aren't God. But from the very beginning, you were called good by a God who made you woven with love and with care. You are made in the image of God. And guess what? As you look around the room, just take a look. Wow, what beautiful people we have here today. And every person you see made in the image of God. Every skin color and hue, every facial structure, every person that you see, every gift that's manifested underneath the skin of what you see made in the image of God. Friends, you have never interacted with a single person who is not made in the image of this God. That should change everything about the way that we treat one another, about the way that we see one another. But God, in Genesis 1, is speaking, making, blessing, giving, seeing, and resting. This is the stuff of culture. Culture, as we talk about it, is is something that enables us to have an actual relationship. Right? Like the words that I'm saying make, at some level, sense to you. I hope they make the sense to you that I, I, I intend for them. But you may hear them in a different way. That can happen. But words are containers that I can speak over you and hopefully convey something to you. And that's all culture. Language creates culture, right? The things that we make. You're probably not thinking about the chair that you're sitting on right now. But somebody, at some point, made that chair. And so we are seated in a place where words are being spoken. There's culture happening. The things that we do, if you're super familiar with Christian culture, you walked in and people were singing songs and you were like, this is exactly what I expected. If you are not familiar with Christian culture and you maybe saw like somebody raising their hands and you walked in, you're like, they're singing? Like where else in the world do you gather in a room and just sing songs? Like, I think that's kind of an attractive part about being a Christian, but like you may have been like, what is happening here? Who are these weird people? That's okay. We're so glad you're here. Welcome. But every sort of gathering and interaction is a manifestation of culture. And this is what God is doing here. Andy Crouch says that culture is God's gift to Adam. Without culture, without a garden, how could this human dustling survive in the wildness of even a very good created world? God does not just give Adam free reign in a trackless world. God plants a garden. God begins the work of culture before he gives the work to Adam. Culture is God's creation as much as nature is. 
The Lord God's hands have dug into the dirt. He has touched it. He has blessed it. Everything Adam does as a gardener will begin with what God did. Culture is God's idea. So God is creating this culture, and then he's going to invite us as those made in his image to be the curators of this culture. He says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, these words can sound imposing, and they've certainly been used as an excuse for exploitation, as if we have to strive or take, but that's not what's envisioned here. Because if we are made in the image of this God who speaks, who makes, who blesses, who gives, who rests, who sees, then the way that we establish dominion, the way that we fulfill this initial call, this initial call to mission here in Genesis 1 verse 28 is by following and copying the God in whose image we are made. We start off, we see this wide-angle view. Genesis 1 is this symphony of creation, God speaking the world into existence. And then in Genesis 2, we're going to zoom in. We're going to move from this very wide-angle view to a very specific time and place. Genesis 2 gives us a zoomed-in view of creation. And we have these two accounts. If you read the Bible, Genesis 1 talks about creation. Genesis 2 talks about creation. They're not differing accounts, but they are different They're parallel. They don't tell the same story, but they do sort of tell the same story in a different way. They have different things to say, and this is the beauty about so much of the monumental things that happen in the scriptures. The scriptures bear witness by just providing multiple accounts. We have four gospels of Jesus because one would not be enough. We have to reflect on these things that have happened among us. But as we move to Genesis 2... I want to offer a couple of sneaking suspicions, especially as it pertains to that which might be holy in your life. I have a sneaking suspicion, just as I said, that for many of you, the holiest moment in your life would not start with, I was in a church service. Maybe for some of you it would, and that's very good. But I have a sneaking suspicion that when we talk about the mission of God, especially if you were raised in a church context, you have a very narrow perspective on what kind of work and things qualify as mission and what kind of things are disqualified from that definition. That for many of us, when we think about mission, we think about very specific activities. I also think that for many of you in here, you have hobbies. You have ambitions. You have just ways that you've been wired in the world. And if you're honest, you can't see how those things align and fit with the sort of structure of church as you have experienced and received it. You can't really see how those things fit into an overall picture of a life with God. They, like if you're honest, your life feels a bit segmented. It's like you, you kind of have your hobbies and your stuff over here. You've got your spiritual life over here, right? Whatever that means, right? And you've got all these different pieces where there's walls built up between them. I think for others of you in here, there are people that have dreams of how to serve, how to bless the world, how to make something that would be a gift to the world. But again, as you look at the structure of church or your experience in church as you've experienced it, you're like, I don't see how this fits with that. And so we do this thing. We start to build up walls, and segments. 
And friends, can I just tell you something today? Can I just be real honest? I love when people ask that when they're speaking. You'd be like, no, you can't. (laughs) It would be so much easier for me today if I could stand before you each week and give you a religious checklist and just say, if you do these things, if you spend this amount of time sitting in this room, if you spend this amount of time sitting in a community that Brenda just described, if you spend this amount of time serving the poor, then you can check all of those things off your list and then you can go do what you want with the rest of your life. That'd be so much easier. You guys would like me more. It'd be so much simpler. That's so often what people want from me. They're just like, what, what is the thing that I have to do? And it's infinitely more complex Because God will not settle for these little pieces of our life that we are willing to offer him. But because, as Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us, he made the whole world, God, in fact, wants the whole world. He wants all of us. And it's so much more complex to think about the whole of our lives lived before God. But can I tell you, friends, that it is also so much better. That Jesus is wanting to integrate our lives because... Living lives of disintegration, living lives of segments and walls is exhausting. Today, my hope as we look at these texts is that you will see that God is calling the whole of your life that he has created, that he made in his image, the whole of your life to be lived before him and that that is a gift to the world. God will not stay in the boxes, the temples, the rules, the Bibles that we try to confine him to. He made it all and he wants it all. Rene Padilla says it this way, If Jesus Christ is Lord of the whole universe and has been granted sovereignty in heaven and on earth, his dominion extends over the economic and the political spheres, over the social and the cultural Over the aesthetic and the ecological, over the personal and the communal, nothing and no one is excluded from his authority. Abraham Kuyper would say, there is not a square inch of the universe that the Lord God does not declare mine. It's all his. Let's look for ourselves in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The hinge, the through line between these two accounts of the creation that we have given to us, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the thing that connects them together is God's Sabbath rest. The Lord takes up residence in the temple that he has made to meet with humanity, the very theater of creation. The world begins not with striving or battle or with rest, as in some Middle Eastern myths that were uh, taking place at the time when the Bible was written. But this version of creation just says there's a God who speaks the world into existence and there is no rival to his throne. He merely takes up residence in the world that he has made. And it says there was evening and there was morning and it's bearing witness to this rhythm. The Hebrew people conceived of days as beginning in the night. You know, you think about when do we think the day starts? We think the day starts when we wake up, right? And what does that subtly say that we start the day? But if there's evening and then there is morning, then when you arise from your slumber, the day has long preceded you. The day is a gift. 
You enter into something that has gone on before you were aware of it. You receive it. There is evening and there is morning. God, our provider and creator, is paving the way with his peace and grace. It says in Genesis 2, it goes on. It says, When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 2, the scope of creation has now become a specific time and place. There's a setting for the story to take place, and we have to pay attention to what kind of setting this is. It's a garden. Hmm. A garden is a place brimming with life. A place that in some of our hands can border on chaos. But a place in the hands of a skillful gardener that can be ordered for life for all sorts of creatures. Now this tells us so much about the point of the story that the Bible is telling. Because it's so easy for us to envision that the story that the Bible is telling is all about this kind of platonic perfection where everything stays the same always. And this is often the image of heaven that we're given, right? Is heaven will be where there's, there's no more death, no more pain. Yes, and amen, I, I long for that but you'll also just be floating on a cloud forever and attending church services. And that sounds boring for many of us. For some of you, maybe that sounds awesome. <laughs> but if we pay attention to the story as we have received it, a garden is not a settled place. A garden is a place where life begets life, where things are happening and so perhaps the story has never been about a changeless past or a changeless future, but about entering into the place where God is present by experiencing the dynamic reality of the creator God. Perhaps that is the story that God has written and invited us into. If you wanted to paint a picture of a static world, you would not set the story in a garden. And God in this passage is still making by the power of the very breath in his lungs. But now he has moved. In Genesis 1, he speaks creation into being. Let us make humankind in our image. And in Genesis 2, he's still breathing out. But now this breathing has turned into something that sounds much more like a kiss. He breathes his life into the lungs of the man made in his image. And soon the woman will follow. And God is still giving. It says that he gives trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. This is so important for us to pay attention to. Notice the trees that are present. There's four of them named. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one we are told to stay away from. God says, I freely give you permission to eat from any of these trees. Just don't eat from that one. This is the tree of limitation. There's the tree of life. There's the trees that are good for food, God. The world that he has made is a world where there's enough to eat for everyone. And then there's these other trees that have no purpose. They're just nice to look at. Hmm. 
Again, we have to pay attention to the story that's being written, not the story that we think is being written. And the story that God is telling us is that there are things in God's good world that are just beautiful to look at. The garden from the beginning was a place of justice. This is what having enough to eat is. A place where everybody has enough and a place of beauty. A place where God was inviting us to behold the goodness of his creation. Now, the next section may strike you as completely random, and you'll see what I mean. Let's take a look. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, why this attention paid to specific places, especially two of these rivers, we have no idea where they are. Now, Tigris and Euphrates, if you crush third grade geography, the Fertile Crescent. But why? Why these details? And then, not even just the rivers. Okay, we could, we could get around like the place that this takes place. But then, these weird metals that are listed there. Gold, bdellium, onyx. Like, you ever read parts of the Bible and you're just, like, you're reading like one of those genealogies and you're just like, this makes no sense. I have no idea why I'm reading this. And you just skip right past it. Honestly, for me, this section was one of those. I was like, gold, bdellium, onyx? I have no idea. Carry on. But... As artists often do, I found an artist who was writing on this text, a man named Makoto Fujimura, who lives just a couple miles from here. And he was writing about this text, and he said, no, we have to look at this differently. And Mako said that the presence of gold, bdellium, and onyx are not random at all, but suggest exploring, excavating, and experimentation. You see, think about gold. Gold is not just, like, even in God's gardened world, not just sitting there on the surface. You have to find it. You have to look for it. And then once you find it, what are you going to do with it? Like it turns out that gold is an incredibly efficient conductor of electricity, but we would not have known that had we done something with it. It turns out that gold can be made beautiful, but we would not have known that had somebody taken it and melted it and tried to mold it into these things. Friends, Perhaps the world that God has made, perhaps part of the mission that he's wired into the very image that he has endowed us with is about experimenting, about exploring, about excavating. Do any of you like to hike? Do any of you do experiments? I know there are scientists in our midst, so hello. But perhaps that work is not so far removed from the holy kingdom stuff that we would all acknowledge. Perhaps God wired that into our very being, that we would find the stuff of creation, that we would even play with it. And experimenting at some level is just sort of directed play. We would make something with it that would be a gift to the world and that it would bless the world. Perhaps. All right, let's go on. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, this is in Genesis 2, to till and to keep it. Pay attention to that. This good garden that God has planted has now been entrusted to those made in his image. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. The Lord puts the man right in the middle of this beautiful garden, ripe with trees that are good for food and beautiful to behold, with rivers and places to explore and excavate and tend and till and keep. God has invited us to join him in stewarding creation so that it would bear fruit. But this isn't all. God now invites the man to name things. Now, any of us who have little kids, like you could see this process was probably full of joy. Like one of the most joyful things is when your kids come up with completely absurd names for very normal things. And in your house, like whatever they name it, you're like, that's what that will be called now. So, you, you know, your kids talking about all sorts of things in the house and they come up with their own names and you're like, that is what we will call it. And we will not tell them the correct names because someday they will figure that out. And that will mean that they have grown up and that will be sad. And so just as God called day, day, and night, night in Genesis 1, now God shares that task of naming with the man made in his image. But something is still not good, not right. No suitable companion can be found. And so it says, The Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man and takes one of his ribs and closes up the space that he took the rib from with flesh. God, in his own gracious way, again, it would seem like such a, a weird detail. Why does he describe this surgery that he performs on the man to form the woman? But God, in his own gracious way, is involving the man in the making. From the very beginning, that which is different in the scriptures, which in the beginning is male and female, it will continue to evolve as the scriptural story takes place. These different nations, these different places, all of it is integrated. All of it is intimately connected. And as the woman appears on the scene in Genesis 2, the man sees, remember, God sees in Genesis 1, and the man now sees this woman, and upon beholding the woman, he says, at last, at last. The man at the end of chapter 2 is doing all of the things that we saw God doing in chapter 1. He sees, he beholds the beauty of this woman. He blesses at last that is an expression of thanks. Thank you, God. That's an expression of rest. He gives with his words, that word of blessing. He speaks it over her. Friends, it is no small thing that the first words that humanity speaks in the story of the scriptures are words of praise to God. Praise to God for the love and the appearance of a neighbor. The chapter concludes, the end of chapter 2, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Ecclesia, this is shalom. Peace with God. Enough to eat. Trees that are beautiful to behold. A job to do. Peace with neighbor. Praise and worship. This 
all-encompassing reality is the reality of the peace that God pronounces over us. This is the peace that Jesus has for us. Okay, so now, you might be asking, what does any of this have to do? We read a place like Luke 9 and Luke 10. Jesus sends out his disciples to do all the stuff that Jesus did, feeding the 5,000, casting out demons, healings, teaching people about the kingdom of God. Isn't that the stuff of mission? Isn't that what's being described when we talk about the mission of God? But I think when we think in those terms, we run the risk of segmenting our lives again, of building walls where God has broken them down. It's not less than that. Jesus has called us to those things, to be ambassadors of his kingdom. But he's called us to be whole and integrated people. And friends, do we think that that Jesus lived his life in such a way that he was trying to bring the kingdom of God near? I think we do. But do you realize that if we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we only get a very fractional, small glimpse of Jesus' life? We get snapshots. He lived for 33 years. I mean, John says if everything that Jesus did were to be recorded, that all the books in the world could not contain the book, or all the, the world could not contain the books. And what that's saying to us is that the life that Jesus lived off camera, out of the snapshots, was it any less directed towards fulfilling the mission of God? I certainly don't think so. And what that might be suggesting to us as we sort of fill in those gaps is that perhaps the way of living in the world in ordinary, unseen ways, perhaps those simple, small ways are just as much about the mission that God has for us as those big things that we would all point to and say, that is holy, that is kingdom, that means so much to the world. Perhaps that is the furnace that God is forming us. To be made in the image of God is to do the things that God does in order to cultivate shalom. God gives us, in the beginning, the charge to be his partners, his co-regents, the image of his rule and reign, and we do that by copying our Father. We speak, we make, we bless, we give, we see, and we rest. The Gospel writer John is really meticulous in describing Jesus' resurrection in terms of a new creation. You see, the message that the writers of the Gospels are trying to convey is not just that Jesus has one salvation for your soul and so that when you die, you will go to heaven. But the message they are trying to convey is that the kingdom of God has come near and that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that kingdom is here and is present in a unique way right now that a new creation that was reserved for the future has been planted right in the present and that we can live in light of that new creation right here and right now in our lives. The gospel writers are trying to say this. And they want us to see. And so John, when he's talking about the first appearance of Jesus, when he's telling the story, Jesus meets Mary Magdalene and she's in the garden and she's weeping over this tomb because she thinks that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. And she's talking to somebody that she thinks is the gardener. The gardener? There's no unnecessary details. John 20 tells us Mary mistakes the risen, resurrected Jesus for the gardener. And John is just sitting there, like, slightly elbowing us. Just like, you get that one? It all started in a garden, and now there's a gardener. He's kind of the gardener, but he's really the resurrected Christ. Like, he's just doing this very subtle thing. 
And then he goes on in John chapter 20. He says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, evening, when it was evening, that sounds familiar. And the doors of the house were locked where the disciples had met for fear of the religious leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed upon them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Notice again the evening language echoing Genesis 1. The disciples are afraid like the man and the woman would be as they're mired in their shame in the garden in Genesis 3. But Jesus comes and stands among them and offers the blessing of heaven. He offers a echo and a callback to that initial shalom at last. They were naked without shame. Jesus stands in this place of fear and of shame, breaking through the locked doors, and he pronounces to them the words that heaven have to say to earth, and he says, peace. And Ecclesia, he's saying that to us today. That wherever you're coming from, God is trying to integrate our lives. And so much of integration is about knowing that God sees us in fullness, that we can bring our shame and our weights before him. And Jesus says to us, in the midst of that place, peace. And he tells them that the forgiveness that you let loose in the world will wind the world with mercy and restoration. He entrusts them again to be his co-regents, his partners. Jesus is not discarding the world, not asking us as partners in God's mission to be these sort of spiritual people floating above the reality of the world. Jesus is trying to integrate your life. What brings you joy? What lights you up? What dreams do you have? Perhaps, even if you can't conceptualize that within the framework of a church, Jesus is saying, that is the thing. Perhaps those impulses to cultivate, to keep, to till, to produce the trees that look good, that are just beautiful. What's that for? Well, it's just pretty. That's art, right? It's inefficient. It slows us down, but that's what art does. Perhaps those impulses to produce trees that feed the world, perhaps those are not somehow removed from your life in the kingdom, but are so, so fundamental to the reality that God has called you to. Do you like your work? What a gift. What a gift that is. I know for many of us, that's not our reality. But whether you love your job or you hate your job, the point is not in what we do. The point is in the God who meets us there. You see, in all of this, the thread that is tying all of this together, all of this making, seeing, blessing, giving, is the presence of God. It's about God coming to us. It's about God moving in and through us. Mission begins and ends in encounter in God's presence. The stuff that we do in our lives as a reflection of Genesis 1 and 2 matters. The stuff that we do, not just in this room, the stuff that we do that doesn't just have this Christian sheen upon it, the stuff that we do matters. And T. Wright says it this way, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. 
What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day comes when we leave it all behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. The question is not, friends, do you do important kingdom things in your free time? When you're not working, not taking care of kids, not studying, but do you pray that the kingdom of God will come near in your life? Are you allowing Jesus into your joys, into your shames? Are you allowing Jesus into your dreams? That is where mission begins. Frederick Buechner said, You will know your calling when you find where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Friends, for us today, Mission is surely about telling people what Jesus has done for them. Yes and amen. Mission is surely about us moving outside of our comforts, uh, outside of the normal way we would live our lives and moving towards people. But mission is also about the things that we do, sitting around tables, interacting with friends, neighbors, and strangers alike. The things that we do matter. The mission of God as he shows us in Genesis 1 and 2, is to be near to us. If you read the story well, you see that God not only planted a garden and put the man and the woman in the garden, but that he walks through the garden in the cool of the evening. That in the end, that that garden will become a city. As Rob Bell once said, what is a city but a bunch of gardens that are thrown together, closely together? It's all moving somewhere. It's all going somewhere. And in that city, the Lord God will be present. That there will be no more death and no more sin and no more pain because Jesus himself is there. Father, Spirit, and Son, bringing it all together. The mission of God is to be near to us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. To show us his love. God spoke you into being. You were made in the image of God. And he speaks to you now. You weren't just made in the image of God as if God was this kind of faceless producer who said, yes, let there be this person. But God speaks to you now. The first words that Jesus speaks upon his resurrection are a person's name, and that is infinitely significant. God wants to meet with you now. God blesses you with his favor and joy. It doesn't mean everything will always go amazingly. But what we find throughout the scriptures as we read the stories well, is it's not about the results. It's not about how everything worked out perfectly, but it's about God being with us, blessing us with his presence. God gives himself to you and to me and to the world, infinite self-giving love. God sees you in all your pain and your promise. God sees your shame, God sees your fears, and he comes near speaking peace all the same. And God is inviting you to find delight, joy, strength, rest in his presence, to lay your burdens upon him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Paul says that whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it to his glory. And what if we could see the world differently? That every step that we take is not taken 
on secular ground, but it's on holy ground that we can take our shoes off and behold, the attention of heaven is fixed upon us and we simply have to turn our hearts towards him. What if it's all holy? God wants to be with us. That is his mission. And each week we come to declare the reality of that mission to this table. Where the blessing of heaven meets with human culture. I mean, what is bread? But farming, baking, this is the stuff that we make. But Jesus, in all his goodness, has said that the stuff you make is the place where I will meet you. So we come. And we take bread and we hear the word spoken over us that this is Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus takes a cup. And again, what is wine? The long process of God's patient care of harvest, waiting. And humans taking that and making something of it. Goodness of God, forgiveness of sins poured out for us. And each week we come to this table. I'm going to invite our communion service to come forward. And as I do that, I want to pray over you. Just a couple ways as we sort of receive here today, we want to receive from God. Because again, God is the subject of the verbs. We want to reflect and we want to respond. So we receive from the table. And I just want to invite you as you reflect. And one of the words our prayer team received this morning was, was just a simple word, more. And I sort of see that as I'm talking about this wide angle view, like what does it look like to serve God, to play and to work and to live in light of his kingdom? Maybe you just need a bigger perspective. Maybe that that will help you in the small confines of your life to live in light of his kingdom. Pray for more. God, give me more ambition. Give me more dreams for your kingdom to serve and love others. Give me more of a perspective how these little seemingly insignificant moments of my life absolutely matter to the future that you have won for us. I just want to simply pray over them. As you come and you receive from the table, I invite you, you can take one hand, dip the bread in the cup, receive.